This is TechSnap, episode 391. Hello and welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems, network, and administration podcast. This episode was recorded on Thursday, November 29th, 2018. My name is Wes, and joining me, he's managed to stay in Washington for almost a whole week. That's right, it's Chris. I missed uh, doing the show with you, Wes, so I figured we better do two in a row at least. I missed you too. It doesn't hurt that uh, we had some shenanigans with WireGuard before the show started. That was a lot of fun. We had a pre-show play with WireGuard and got... An awesome remote studio setup going now. Yeah, it turns out very productive. Yeah, it was really cool. But today, we're going to talk about something that has people buzzing, amongst many other things, Firecracker. Yeah, it's been a huge week for Amazon. Lots of stuff happening at their annual reInvent conference over in Las Vegas. We didn't go, but a lot of the Linux Academy crew did go. It's definitely been a huge week for Amazon with their annual reInvent conference, and there's been way too much news for us to follow today. But there's a little bit we did want to cover, and that's Firecracker. It's an interesting new take on virtualization based on, yes, that's right, our favorite virtualizer, KVM. KVM. I am a big fan of KVM. So this is, what, being pitched as a really low-level, tiny virtualizer? I don't really get what the big benefit here is if it's based on KVM. Not to downplay this, because I know it's getting a lot of traction, so I'm hoping you can explain it to me, because the buzz is through the ceiling with Firecracker. The value proposition for Firecracker is a little bit different than maybe some of the traditional virtualization technology that you're familiar with because it's it's focused. Amazon had specific problems that they were trying to solve running services like Fargate and Lambda, uh, and Firecracker was born to solve those problems. So mm. I think that you know a lot of times you have to kind of choose. Do you want like a big, beefy VM that you're going to run? You get a lot of traditional security guarantees that we know from doing that, or do you want some sort of ephemeral, lightweight, containerized workload um, an example of this is when Lambda first launched, they were running like spinning up a whole big VM to run so that so that could make sure that workloads were isolated uh, for each customer. But right. that's expensive and it takes a long time. It takes time. And, yeah, it's it's complicated. Mm. So Firecracker spins up these tiny little micro VMs. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if I love that term, but that that's what they're calling them. <laughs> okay. And I guess it is kind of clear. So yeah, okay. Um, and not only are they focused on security, but also speed. So the number they're saying is 125 milliseconds. To so launch a VM? Just to, yeah, to spin up a new VM. Ooh. Yeah, and uh, you know, really they're going to run these things, I'm sure, on, on big servers. So um, it's, it's meant to scale really well. You can run a whole bunch of these with minimal overhead. Yeah, I did notice in their announcement, they said Firecracker consumes about 5 megabytes of memory per micro VM. That's remarkable. Yeah, there's actually a lot that's impressive about Firecracker. And you can tell it's a... It's a modern application designed with like a narrow focus. Uh, hmm. So of course, um, it, you know it's, it's written in Rust, Chris. I thought uh, you might like that. Uh, okay, you got me there. And that means it kind of executes in its own uh, particular way. It, it's a statically compiled executable. So you just you know if you go download it from the release page, you'll just get that executable and you can run it. And it comes with a companion jailer application. And the jailer sets up the environment. You know, gets all the the handles to things resources that it requires, and then execs Firecracker itself. And that way, it can only run with those resources it has. And there's like some limited other interfaces to get certain... That's clever. So some of that early heavy lifting, some of the more resource-consuming heavy lifting, is done outside of what essentially becomes the VM. Yeah, exactly. That's how they get down to that five megs of RAM. (laughs) 
another way they get to that uh, that five megabytes there is that it's a super minimal virtualization environment. One of the problems we saw with QEMU was that there was a whole bunch of extra stuff, and that can be handy when you're virtualizing, let's say, some old great '80s software. Mm-hmm. You don't need it when you're running containers at scale on Amazon's cloud, especially if you can even custom tailor the workload even in the slightest. This is all you get in your Firecracker VM. You get a network device, some block I.O., sure, a programmable interval timer, the KVM clock, a serial console, which is disabled in production, (laughs) and a partial keyboard. It has one key just so that you can reset the VM. That's all it's there for. Amazing. And they mean lean, and it's important because one of the the big vulnerabilities in QEMU of a couple years ago was Venom, which was a bug in the floppy code. Now, I, I don't know about you, Chris, but I don't use a physical floppy drive, and I certainly don't use an emulated one very often. <laughs> yeah, I remember And it story. led to a VM escape. Mm-hmm. You probably remember it because uh, you talked about it on TechSnap 214, Venomous Floppy Legacy. Oh, I thought so. So curious viewers can go check that out if they want a little history on Venom. TechSnap callback 214. I think it's kind of worth noting that what we're seeing here with Firecracker is something that is production-ready. In part, it's battle-tested being built on KVM. But Amazon also announced that they already had this sucker running in production, powering high-volume workloads on Fargate and Lambda. Yeah, this is not a fledgling project. Sure, it's, it's new, and it's newly open-source, and we get to see it. But yeah, they've been, they've been testing it for a while, which is nice. It means we can go, we can yeah. go play with it with some confidence. That open-source part is also really interesting. Yes, you know, Amazon's definitely known for being a large consumer of open-source. It powers a lot of their services. And they've, they've released all kinds of stuff, right? They have uh, open-source API implementations for many languages if you want to go use one of those. But not a ton of, you know, really big, well-known infrastructure pieces. Of course, there was before uh, S2N, which is their super minimal TLS implementation. And you kind of see a theme here where instead of maybe working with an existing project and modernizing it, although they have, of course, donated money to various projects, I don't mean to imply they haven't, they start a new, almost clean room design with a different API, often a simpler modern API. And they can afford to do that because they're a large organization and can you know, custom tailor all this stuff. They don't have to rely on all this. You know. It's one thing, we're not going to re- implement our own SSL. Most people shouldn't. Amazon's one of the people that can. Their implications here, though, could be pretty huge because Firecracker has some nice things about it. Like some of them you've covered, some of them we're going to cover in a moment. It could get some traction. Like this could become an open source project that is adopted widely outside of Amazon. And then they're going to find themselves the the parents of a very popular open source baby. I think we should be clear too, it's not all totally new or new ideas. Um, clear containers from Intel or Kata containers, which is kind of morphed into, those are things that still exist and do similar goals. Um, and there have been other projects that have implemented replacements for QEMU. Google has their own, there's KVM tool. You know, there's multiple options. But Amazon's a big name. They're going to put a lot of resources there using it. You can definitely tell it's modern, too. You, when you run it, you don't get really much of a command line interface. Sure, you know, a couple flags, hmm. but it listens over a Unix socket, and then you talk a JSON API to it. Really? Yep. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> of course. The, I think the thing that could give it some potential uh, success stink is the fact that it is a great opportunity for developers to run something locally that then runs in production on Amazon's infrastructure. And because they're so large, and because so many people are building applications for that infrastructure, it would just be great to be able to run something locally on-premises while you're developing the application, or 
perhaps even as a competitor to Amazon, maybe like a DigitalOcean or a Linode wants to implement something like this so you could run your workload there just as easily. I think it's actually kind of surprisingly widely applicable. I saw some questions from people saying, you know, is this is this only something giant companies will use? And yes, they might use it, but we're not there yet, but I think we'll see more common the idea of using virtual machines now that the cost is so low to, to put containers inside. Because you can boot up this super minimal little Linux kernel and then run a container in it, right? And you get still get the benefits of having that container set up, ready to go, just ready to run, and all the user-facing, dev-facing build tooling that exists for containers, and you get the security model of a virtual machine. So I don't see a reason that you won't be able to use that technology possibly on your desktop too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because at the core, it's KVM. It's probably coming to Kubernetes. They're working on container D support too, so you'll be able to run things that way. You know, we should take a second and probably explain what it means to be based on KVM versus QMU or something, like why that matters. Yeah, I think that is important. There's multiple types of virtualization. I mean, there's there's a a whole bunch of stuff in the topic of virtualization, and QEMU can do a lot of things. And one of those is, is work with the hardware virtualization support provided by modern processors through the kernel's KVM interface, usually like slash dev slash KVM. Right? Talk to the kernel, says like, hey, I want to set this up. Here's my virtual machine. Handles all sorts of you know, hardware optimizations. It also does software virtualization so that you can you know, run all kinds of architectures you don't actually have and do experiments. It's, it's an awesome tool. Firecracker doesn't do that. It relies on whatever host platform you're on. It's not for that case, right? It's less general. All it is for running is virtual machines of the same architecture you're on in an accelerated hardware-assisted fashion, like you would do if you're running a cloud. Right now, it works on Intel processes primarily, but they're working on AMD and ARM support, so all the common ones you see deployed in, in clouds. Well, if you want to learn more about Firecracker, because I have, a, I have a sense this is really just the beginning of something that's going to be bigger and bigger, you can go get a few resources. In our show notes, go to techsnap.systems slash 391. I'd say maybe start with their GitHub page. They've set up their own org. They're trying to build a legitimate community around that project over there. Yeah, there's a lot of activity. It seems like they're doing it really all out in the open. Uh, you can also join their Firecracker Slack workspace if you like Slack or want some immediate feedback from the developers. It's Apache 2.0 licensed. Uh, there's also some BSD stuff from from their heritage. It's actually started off as using the Chromium OS Virtual Machine Manager. <laughs> what? Yes, that's right. It started from Chromium OS. It started from Chromium OS, yes. It was a Rust virtual <laughs> machine manager. They've included some of that and then added a whole bunch more to yes. build Firecracker. Oh, of course, it all comes back to Rust. They do have a pretty uh, strict charter, seemingly, because they have a, they want this to be a focused project. But if you you know want to contribute along those goals, they welcome contributions. So go try it out. Thanks for going to techsnap.system slash contact to send us, really, well, whatever you want. War stories, comments, questions, they're all great. Yep. Yeah, before we get to the questions, though, and we have a, we have a, a fun twist. Oh, we do, question. yes. Uh, we should do some follow-up because Wes Payne, reporting in from the BGP desk here at Jupiter Broadcasting, he's always watching the BGP headlines. The BGP beat. He's a BGPer, and uh, looks like there could be some good news from the open. BGP Decamp. That's right, your favorite software for doing BGP from the team at OpenBSD. They make some great internet software, that part is for sure. Unfortunately, OpenBGPD hadn't seen a lot of use, at least at the major internet exchange points. And, you know, we've got internet speed just keep going up and up, and it had some performance limitations that just meant it wasn't seeing as much use. And that meant the other main competitor, Bird, the Bird Internet Routing Daemon. Oh yeah, everybody knows about Bird. Bird's of course, the word. yes, it's, it's pretty much the standard. It's the word, you might say. 
but it was really the only standard. And that mm. meant we had a monoculture. And you don't want to see that at some of the most important servers that actually, you know, <laughs> let machines route to one another through yeah. PGP. So yeah. there is some good news, though, thanks in part to the RIPE Community Fund. That's the uh, regional internet registry for Europe, of course. Obviously. They've funded development of OpenBGPD, and we've already got a lot of improvements. One thing that you might be asking right up the front is like, okay, well, does it does it run? I don't, I don't. Maybe I'm not an expert in running and administering OpenBSD. It's a great operating system, but I've already got Linux servers doing other things. Portability is one of the things they're working on. Also, working on our PKI based BGP origin validation, which we've talked about on previous episodes as yes. being an important yes. tactic that more people exchanging internet traffic need to do so that bad routes don't get advertised to places they shouldn't, and then cause big problems for major companies. Powerful. And of course, they've also fixed a bunch of the performance stuff, so some of the some of the limitations, the scaling problems have been resolved. It's not perfect yet, but you can get a lot of these improvements already in OpenBGP 6.4. I think we'll see a, you know, a brighter future for our internet with the, just a little bit more diversity. That's Wes Payne from the Weather Desk for the Internet. Now, moving on to Anton's email. He says, I purchased a server on eBay, and it came with an LSI 9260-4i RAID card. Unfortunately, it doesn't have an HBA or JBOD or any other similar mode that lets it pass the disk through without some level of RAID. Womp. I know I could just do each drive as a RAID 0, but I would just prefer not to do that. I want to get an equivalent HBA but I'm not very familiar with them. After a bit of research, it seems that the LSI 9211-41 may be the equivalent. I just want to double-check with someone more knowledgeable so I didn't make a mistake or run into a gotcha. Thanks, and keep up the great work. Man, this is really the kind of thing that, uh, you know, Alan would have a great answer for. He sure would, and thankfully, we have been visited by the mysterious Alan Jude. He's always <laughs> lurking somewhere on the internet. And in this case, he popped up to answer Anton's question. That's one of the little secrets of the TechSnap program. Uh, Alan, the gentleman that he is, from time to time, is still answering questions that people send into the show, which is so awesome. So what did Alan say? Some of the LSI cards can be cross-flashed to have an HBA mode. I don't think that's the case for the 9260, unfortunately. You can check servethehome.com for huh. tutorials and see if there's one that works for you. I mostly use, I mean Alan, of course, the 9207-8i, but a 9211-4i or 8i should get the job done as well. The FreeNAS forums also have guides on how to get the cheapest possible LSI card. Nice. Thanks, Alan. The uh, tip there he gave, too, we should put a link to that in the show notes, uh, servethehome.com. Thank you, Alan. We'll have a link to that in the show notes, too. That's a good one. How cool is that? It's not guaranteed Alan Jude's going to read your email and respond, but from time to time, he just might. That brings us to the end of today's episode. But before we go, just a few final thoughts. How about a few fun projects to leave folks with this week? How about we start with one that all of the power and all of the responsibility will be in your hands, dear listener. And we are trusting you to use this wisely. It's called Evil Genex 2. How do you think I'm doing on that pronunciation? I think you're doing just fine. It's a man-in-the-middle attack framework used for phishing login credentials along with session cookies, which then, in turn, may allow you to bypass certain types of two-factor authentication protection. <laughs> oh, So again, this is for testing and auditing and verifying. 
How, how did you come across this, Wes? Okay, well, there was one story we didn't cover this week. Uh, if you're interested, we'll have a link to it. But there's been a, turns out Sennheiser headset software, they were installing a trusted cert in your search store on right. your operating system. And then it was possible to extract that key from said software. Yeah. So, and it was software maybe you would set up to like optimize the headphones. And apparently it needed that. And it turns out headphone makers, not great software and right uh, now, manufacturers. Apparently, from what I read, at least, it's not getting fixed necessarily. You should just go pull it. Perhaps that's changed. But yeah, like Wes said, we'll have a link in the show notes. So that that uh, that came out of that, huh? That's well, yeah, right. So that, cool. that brings up the possibility of man-in-the-middle attacks. And if oh. you want to learn more about a man-in-the-middle attack, this tool could be pretty helpful because it's like a really self-contained system. You can go spin up a, a server somewhere to test it on. And then go, you know, get to town, start playing with it if you want to understand the mechanism. Again, use it responsibly, try to learn. But I think that it is so well developed. They've got a lot of instructions there on the GitHub page to actually go get the software working and all the various pieces. It could be very educational. I bet. Now, speaking of doing deep dives, what if you want to do a deep dive into exactly what is in that Docker image? You know, you've included a whole bunch of things. There's multiple from lines. Who knows how many different base images are involved? Or, you know, maybe you're just trying to optimize things. You have a production image. You want to keep make sure things are small. You're not where, sure where each big file is coming from and all the layers. Enter Dive, a tool for exploring a Docker image, layer contents, and discovering ways to shrink your Docker image. It's a command line tool, but I really appreciate the way they lay out a Docker image. It's a, it's a, it's a funny thing to say about a command line tool, but it's a really good visual way to show how deep the rabbit hole really goes in some of these container <laughs> images. Like, I would love to see this uh, go beyond just Docker images, really. This is a great system that we, why not just take a look at? Like Wes said, one you build yourself or a rando one you get off the internet. It's also uh, stupid easy to get. They've already got Debs, RPMs. It's in the AUR. They've got it in Brew for the Mac. It's just Go, so you can go get it with Go Get. And of course, there's a Docker image. I love it. Now, just a reminder, over the next couple of weeks, our schedule is a bit hectic. Uh, we're going to be traveling to Texas for a company party down at Linux Academy. We're looking forward to that. I believe we're also we'll be, we'll be doing some work while we're there. Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. Oh, that's true, too. Uh, and then the week after that, I'm flying to Denver to go hang out with the folks at System76 to see their new rigs. Oh, fancy. And tour their factory. Nice. So the recording schedule is going to be a little hit and miss over the next couple of weeks. We're going to basically try our hardest to have an episode. But don't worry. If we miss a week... You'll still get every episode if you go to techsnap.systems slash subscribe. We say that every week, and that's the truth. There will be something. The thing is, we have huge plans for the show in the near future. Uh, we're really um, excited about some of the future possibilities we have with some of the training architects in the Linux Academy staff that are really really deep experts on some of these topics. Like Firecracker, for example, is something that there will probably eventually be Linux Academy courseware on. And at that point, Linux Academy will have hired somebody to be a full-time expert on that topic. And they bring them in usually from the industry, from Amazon or from another production industry if they can. And we have plans to work with some of those people in the future to help shape some of the content, to make it even deeper and more informed, more focused. Uh, but also, there's going to be a transition happening where eventually I'll transition out of the show, someone else will join Wes, and it'll be a more reoccurring, stabler co-host who's maybe not traveling over the place and trying to do a bunch of stuff in the community these days. So that's just as my focus changed. And we thought that could be an opportunity to make the show even better. Go back to some of our roots, look at what made the show great, 
and then make TechSnap great again? I didn't mean to go there, but that's where it went. <laughs> Keep TechSnap great. That's, that's what right. I'll say. Yeah, you're but right. I mean, there's a lot to be excited about. I think there's a lot that we're going to learn in the next year. There's lots of good contributions coming, and mm-hmm. there's surely going to be a lot of interesting stories to cover. Yeah, I think I think the biggest sh- shift for us is um, we are no longer driven by an ad model. So that means the TechSnap show, which was sort of built around that, was built really for advertisements in a way. It was it was a show that came along when it when it came time for us to grow the network, and we built it so that it could accommodate sponsors. But that's changing, and that's no longer a requirement we have now that we're part of Linux Academy. And there's also a team of people behind us now that we can use to make the show even better, and we can perhaps afford to bring somebody in who's established, who's working in the industry, who's really up-to-date and current and all this stuff and can bring a lot of value into the show to match Wes's current experience and Wes's deep knowledge and really make the show just, I think, I don't want to say much more because it's all still getting firmed up, but I'm just really excited about the direction it's going and some of the big plans we have. So if we do miss a couple of weeks here and there, just, trust me. Yeah, stay with us. We're working on We're much working harder than ever on the show. It really is. It's just holidays and travel schedules and we apologize. If we do miss a couple of weeks here and there, we're going to try not to. Best effort. And, of course, that does bring us, finally, to the end of this week's TechSnap program. Thank you very much for joining us. And we'll see you in the feed. 